So yeah, a, f a flerd is basically a mixture of a flock and a herd. Um, so it's where you have a, a mixed species group of animals. Um, so we, for example, have a flock of lambs, uh, ewe lambs, and a small herd of yearling cattle. And um, we have the two co-mingled and grazing together. And so we just combined flock and, and herd. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Hi, welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you listening with us today. And we've got a I'm one of three hosts on the Beef Podcast Show, and we've got a great guest today, Dr. Amanda Grav. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to have a great discussion today, and we're going to focus on forage and grazing and really talk about some of those important factors which can change how things work on your operation, including what can we do to extend the gra grazing season, and what can we do to promote some diversity in both the species of grass that are out there and the grazers that are out there. So looking forward to get into those exciting topics. Uh, Dr. Grev has done her training at the University of Minnesota. She's also done had some other experiences working with horses in Kentucky, and she is now a forage extension specialist at the University of Maryland. Did I miss anything, Amanda, as we went through your intro? Tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, no, thank you um, for that intro. So, you know, as you mentioned, I did a large portion of my studies in uh, Minnesota. I'm actually from Minnesota originally and um, went to North Dakota State for my undergrad. So kind of was in the upper Midwest for a good period of my life until I was in Kentucky for a little bit, um, did an internship abroad in Australia. So that was kind of fun to do a little bit of, you know, um, see a different uh, world, if you will, see a different world, and then ended up here in Maryland. And it's been going well so far. North Dakota to Australia is quite a difference in climate. And I know you're interested in the grazing and grasses. What are, what are some of the big differences between those two areas? Yeah. So um, at the time I went to Australia, I was actually not quite into the grazing world yet. Um, I was actually just out of undergrad and was considering going to vet school at the time. So I was actually at a vet clinic, so wasn't focused as much on forages, but um, they do a lot of grazing in Australia. Um, they're a lot drier, you know, a lot longer dry season of the year, a lot warmer than us. Um, it was quite the shock uh, shifting from Minnesota to Australia and back or North Dakota to Australia and back at the time um, in, in terms of weather, because you hit you hit the heat of the summer there and then come back to the dead of winter here. And that was exactly know, a shock to the system. But <laughs> yeah, they don't say halfway around the world for nothing. So <laughs> you, you get to switch total seasons where you are. So that is it is excellent that we've got a chance to visit with you because 
a lot of our operations, one of the big areas is on the grazing side. So when we look at costs for a cow-calf operation, one of the biggest costs is, is feed costs, supplemental feed, and one of the highest variable costs is based on whether we can graze more days or not. And I know you've done some work looking at extending the grazing season. So I want to start there and find out what are some things that we can do. And, and I'll start the conversation with kind of a focus on cow-calf producers. So if we're thinking about cow-calf producers, what can I do to extend that grazing season? Yeah, so um, that's a, a great question and a, a great topic. Uh, there's several different things that kind of come to mind initially. Um, one, of course, the basis of all things grazing is focusing on good grazing management practices, um, you know, using some sort of rotational grazing, allowing your grasses to rest, making sure that your um, soil fertility, soil health is there to kind of set you up for success, if you will. Um, that right in and of itself is kind of step number one. Uh, step number two would be maybe adding a little bit of diversity to those uh, pastures, to those fields. We know uh forages, uh, forage species like legumes, you know, alfalfa, clover, et cetera, um, tend to have a slightly different growth cycle than some of our cool season perennials, as in, you know, they have a little bit more productivity during the heat of the summer, that kind of thing. So that can help, um, you know, prolong the grazing season and add more diversity to a mixture. And then you can also layer in um, different uh, types of forages. So, you know, what we've been doing a lot here, what we've been focusing on at least lately is taking our cool season perennial forage base and then adding in some annual forages in separate paddocks that we can rotate between winter annuals and summer annuals. And we can have that as an extra area for grazing at different times of the year. Of course, heat of the summer for the summer annuals and early spring, late fall for the winter annuals. Um, and by layering kind of all those different types of forages and all those different mixtures together, um, we can really kind of start to see some really good season extension in terms of um, grazing management. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. A couple big concepts we hit there and we'll co come back to, because you're, you're talking about the layering and I like your concept of layering because as you think about how we're managing that grazing season, you described, I'm going to use some different annuals mixed with my perennials, and then I may even have a, a mix in the pasture. I want to dive in a little bit on some of those annuals. So when we think about summertime grazing in big parts of the country, depending on where you are, a summer annual can be a nice addition, especially when some of our other grasses kind of slow down as if you're a cool season base. What are some of the summer annuals that you use? Yeah, so that's a great question and one that often surprises people because even when I was in Minnesota, which is where I was, you know, doing a lot of my graduate work, we were planting and using and grazing warm season annuals. And it sounds counterintuitive to have warm season grasses maybe in the, you know, one of our most northern states here in the U.S., but um, you you can surprisingly use those um, in a large portion of the country. 
some of the ones uh, for warm season annuals that we've been using and having um, good success with, at least in our area, has been things like Sudan grass, sorghum Sudan grass, um, cowpeas, if you want to add a legume into that, um, sun hemp. There's, there's a lot of diverse summer annual mixtures out there now. They may have sunflowers, buckwheat, you know, all different kinds of things in them. Um, but really some of the some of the Sudan grass or sorghum Sudan grass type species, some of the millets, those kind of usually make up the base or the bulk of the of the production. And then you can, um, again, layer in some legumes or other species to add in some diversity and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the nice thing, and you said bulk of the production, when you plant the Sudan or Sudex, the, the kind of combination, you got to be prepared. You're going to get some forage. Yeah, actually, a funny story that, um, so we're doing some grazing with this with several different groups of um, animals at a couple of our research stations. And uh, one of the first years that we were using it was with some um, dairy heifers. And uh, it very quickly got ahead of us. And we had, you know, forage that was taller than the dairy heifers. We were having to, you know, bush hog a path to be able to set up our temporary fence through the field. And we <laughs> kind of lost them in the jungle, if you will. So it definitely can produce a lot of forage in the summer months and you really do like have to learn to stay on top of that. Um, but when you do, it can be very rewarding. So I think that a great point is you have to manage it. And you mentioned management intensive grazing. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I, I want to keep following this track because it can produce a lot of volume in a relatively short period of time. And usually that's at a period of time when there may not be a lot else growing. Even our warm season grasses are thriving, but they may not be producing the bulk volume of something like that. So when, when uh, and, and I'll go back to, it varies by region of the country, but how much, how long a period of productivity do you expect from some of those warm season annuals? Yeah, yeah, good question. Some of the warm season annuals um, continue to impress me with their production, um, especially like you said, in, at times of the year when a lot of our cool season perennials are pretty much dormant for the summer. Um, we have been, uh, for our area, which again, I'm in Maryland, planting usually around the first week of June, and they're pretty much ready for grazing about 30 days later, you know, 30 to 40 days, depending on, of course, growing conditions and establishment and all of that. Um, so it's, uh, you know, pretty quick, the amount of forage that you can get. And then in terms of length of grazing, um, just for an example, this year, we are currently on our third rotation through our summer annual mixture. So we started grazing that around early to mid-July, and we have been on that since then. And now we're, you know, end of August, moving into September. Um, so we've had a lot of good summer forage, which has been really helpful, especially this year. Um, I know there are areas of the country this year that are very wet, but um, here in my region, we've had a very, very dry summer. I think the driest since I've been in Maryland. And um, there's a lot of uh, very small corn around. There's a lot of pastures and hay fields that are just have been dormant for a long time because of lack of rain, lack of moisture. And those summer, summer annuals are still trucking along. So um, we've been very happy with them, especially in a year like this. They're surprising in both their drought and heat tolerance. So they, they do well with seemingly relatively little water and uh, they not only tolerate the heat, they seem to enjoy it. There's, there's summer things for sure 
What, what about on the winter side? What are some of the things that you use? You mentioned some winter annuals as well. What are some of your recommendations in that area? Yeah, so we've been um, in the same field um, rotating between a summer annual and a winter annual. So um, when it comes to be, you know, probably in the next few weeks, actually, we'll start um, terminating some of our summer annuals and planting some of our winter annuals. Um, again, there's a lot of options. Um, we really like uh, triticale a lot. So a lot of the, you know, small grains, uh, triticale, rye, wheat, um, all of those can be used. Um, we, we have had good luck with triticale and, and really like that one. And just like with the summer annuals, we've also been layering in some um, legumes with that. So uh, we like crimson clover a lot, um, but there, you know, are other clover options as well. Um, so that's kind of been a nice one. And lately we've been playing around with um, adding in a little bit of oats, uh, particularly for in the fall. So you can get kind of some of that late fall, early winter grazing. Of course, those won't overwinter uh, unless you're further south than we are. Um, but you'll get that kind of uh, push of growth in the fall. You're able to kind of graze the oats and anything else that's come up in the fall. And then the triticale, crimson clover, and we've also included um, annual ryegrass in our mixtures as well. And those will overwinter and give you kind of a, a nice stand the following spring. So that's kind of what we're currently using the most, but um, we are playing around with, you know, different species, different mixtures, um, et cetera. So I think it, your point is really good in that some things like oats, we may get some rapid production, but then once we go through the freeze of winter, they're gone. Whereas then maybe our wheat or some of the rye may come on. And then if I've got some rye grass in there, it may come on even later. So you can kind of space it out depending on what you plant. My question is, and you mentioned we're using the same plot in the summer and in the fall. Do we, is that hard on soil health? Is that good for soil health? Do I have to manage my fertilizer plan differently when I'm using that plot for so many different applications? Yeah, that's a, another good question. Um, so I have, we haven't done as much looking into the soil health in these fields, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, but um, a lot of the fields that we've been using were all kind of beat up Kentucky 31 tall fescue fields um, that we've kind of been trying to reinvigorate a little bit by planting some of these different annual species and these diverse mixes. Um, here in Maryland, at least, we have a lot of no-till planting, so we have very little uh, not very few, but um, not a huge amount of farms that actually do a whole lot of tillage these days anymore. Um, that's just kind of the way the industry has moved. Um, so we've been using all no-till on our fields, um, which again is another you know pro for soil health. And I think having some of these mixtures, having those continuous living roots in the soil uh, for a long portion of the year, and always having you know something growing there, always providing cover armor for that soil surface. Um, it has been a positive for everything. So did I understand you correctly that you're, because I had pictured when you started talking about this, I pictured you've got a plot that's kind of set aside that's different than the regular pasture that you're doing this stuff in. But then when I just heard you talk, now I'm picturing you're doing this as overseeding. So it's not necessarily a clean plot. Are you going in with that fescue or are you, are you doing it in a clean plot scenario? And can I do either? Yeah, sorry. Um, I, I should have been a little more clear with that. So um, this is a clean field. So it had fescue, which was terminated, um, but it was kind of an older field. It wasn't a really great stand of fescue is where a lot of hay feeding was done. Um, or another field that we've used at a different research center was a crop field. 
um, previously. So we're kind of using the annuals to transition from cropping into eventually probably planting it into a perennial pasture. So I've actually seen a lot of farms have really good success with these annuals for, you know, a pasture that needs renovation or a field that kind of has gotten beat up over the years. Maybe it was a winter feeding area and it's just kind of not performing to the its fullest potential. And so people have said, okay, I'm going to plant annuals here for several years, for several seasons, kind of, you know, get some new things growing, kind of reinvigorate that field a little bit, and then maybe transition that back into a perennial pasture. Then maybe there's another field elsewhere on the farm if they like the annuals and they want to keep doing that, you know, pick a different field and, and start over in that field and kind of use that field instead. That's where at least most of the producers that I've talked to lately have had the most success with it. Um, there has been work looking into, you know, tilling right into a existing perennial pasture stand, but um, I don't know, we haven't had as much success with that here. Um, you know, if you have a really good perennial stand, you don't necessarily want to, you know, potentially hurt it by drilling in some annuals and you may get limited uh, germination or less production than you want. This is, that's why I was surprised. Now you see, now you see my surprise. <laughs> I was like, Oh, wow, that's interesting. So if in that case, and, by the winter feeding areas, those are always spots that are hard to manage. And we have to have them. Most parts of the country, we've got winter feeding areas. Sometimes it's a dry lot, and then I guess I'm not too worried about it because we will we'll use it the next year and, it, and it's just basically out of production. In other cases, our feeding occurs in the pasture and we do develop some of those areas. Are some of these summer annuals, can they, can they help rejuvenate those areas? Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, I think so. I think if you have an area that's, you know, been beat up a little bit, um, had, you know, either heavy feeding, a lot of hay fed in that area, you know, pugging from the winter time, if you can go in and maybe, you know, smooth that out a little bit if it's really beat up or, or just drill in some annuals and kind of get some new growth, get some, you know, new roots kind of stimulating that soil a little bit. Um, I think that's definitely a positive for those areas. And because it's an annual, it's okay if it gets beat up again the next year, you know? So that's right. Cause you're going nice. to, you're going to come back in. What, what about, we? I, I was asking earlier, the fertilizer. So do you, do you have to end up using a lot of fertilizer in these scenarios to get the production levels we talk about? And do I have to fertilize, especially interested in the scenario where I've got a summer annual and a winter annual? Yeah, so our kind of standard has been to use a, um, a small amount of fertilizer. Well, okay, given our soil pH and everything is up to par, um, you know, per usual, we want to make sure kind of all that is um, in a healthy range. We want a good soil pH. You want to have a good base, you know, potassium and all those things. Um, as far as nitrogen, though, we've been giving it usually just a little bit of nitrogen kind of right at planting and then um, doing that both when we establish the summer annuals and then again when we establish the winter annuals is kind of how we've been going about it. And you really do see a difference when you put a little bit of nitrogen on. That said, um, at one of our research stations, we have a fewer animals and a pretty big field of annuals at the moment. So we actually decided not to put the nitrogen on it um, because we didn't want to get overtaken. <laughs> um, so that's kind of, again, like a play it by ear thing. But um, yeah, I, I think a small amount helps. That makes sense. And, and you said in most cases, you're no-till drilling this. And are there options for, do you, is, are there other methods of application? Because I know we could you could go in and you talked about tillage not being as popular. A lot of times people will talk about cover crops and they'll no-till drill. 
once in a while we'll broadcast some of those, but you're, you're, you've had the most success with no-till drilling. Yeah, we've pretty much um, stuck with no-till drill just because that's kind of standard here and what's worked. I know of people who have established annuals um, using broadcasting, so that can work as well. You just have to make sure you get, of course, that good um, seed to soil contact. And um, sometimes maybe something like a crabgrass, uh, something that's a lighter seed, uh, might work better in those types of situations where um, it just kind of has to be scratched into the soil surface a little bit. It doesn't have to be planted um, quite as deep. So um, that could be another option. Um, I know it's crazy of me to say, uh, suggest planting crabgrass because we always have thought of that as a kind of a weedy species, but there are several varieties now on the market of, of a forage type crabgrass um, that was designed for more leaf production. And, you know, it's not quite the same as that wild type crabgrass that we use. And, and I know that we have quite a few crabgrass fans um, out there. Um, so yeah, that's another option as well. Absolutely. As much as we talk about getting it out of the yard, uh, cattle like it and cattle, cattle will graze it. You get a good stand of crabgrass and they will really enjoy it and it can be productive. Uh, but in your yard, it can be a nuisance, <laughs> hard to, hard to get rid of, which may make a good trait for something in a pasture. Yeah. A weed is a plant out of place, right? That's what they always right. say. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of the things that you discussed, you're doing multiple species when you're planting your annuals. And, and that's a little bit of a departure from some of the previous times people will talk about these different things. They'll be using a monoculture, right? So I'm going to plant wheat or I'm going to plant a cereal rye. And you talked about, well, I'm going to plant those and maybe a crimson clover. Or I'm going to plant those and something else together. Do you always plant a mix or do you, and, and what's the advantages of that versus me just doing a monoculture. Yeah, so we we've done both. Um, we've we've done you know Sudan grass by itself. We've done triticale by itself in the winter, um, and you can get a really nice stand and, and a good field for grazing with those as well. Um, we have been adding in the legumes mostly for kind of the uh, diversity in you know root types, diversity in forage types, a uh, little bit of extra protein maybe for the animals. Um, a little bit more, you know, nitrogen fixation uh, with some of those legumes. Um, so, you know, for several reasons, but we have also, like I said, used um, monoculture species as well. And there are times when maybe that is the right choice. So this past year, um, one of our fields, we have kind of a heavy um, spiny amaranth uh, pressure from that field just over years of, you know, accumulating a seed bank of that, I guess. And so we actually um, elected to plant just Sudan grass in that field this year and not include a legume just so we could keep our options open in terms of if we need to use an herbicide or something like that, um, because we know that field has a lot of weed pressure in it. So there is a time and a place, I think, for for both monocultures and mixtures. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, because there are times where you, you may have to take care of some of the weeds, which in many cases, when we're taking care of weeds, it would also take care of our legumes <laughs> with what with what we're using. So you, you want to, in those cases, kind of plan ahead as you're thinking. You also mentioned the importance of rest on your pasture. So after grazing, having rest and, and whatever your rotation schedule is, how do I know with a different species, and I know the timeline varies, how do I know what's the right amount of rest before I can put cattle back on? 
Yeah, so uh, I would say follow the same rule of thumbs that we do for our perennial species, right? It's not going to be so much a set number of days. It's not going to be so much a set number of weeks. It's going to be more about the forage growth and what stage of growth those forages are at and whether or not they're um, ready for grazing. So, um, you know, some of the uh, warm season annuals especially um, tend to have a little bit higher growing points. So we might, we try not to graze those off too short, uh, especially on our first one or two grazings. By the third one, you know, we're kind of ready to clean up the field maybe and, and prepare for planting some of those winter annuals. So then it's okay maybe to graze it a little bit tighter, but we try to kind of, um, you know, leave a good six, eight, 10 inches of um, stem on that plant and just kind of have them graze the, the leaves off the top, which if you're pushing production should be kind of your goal anyways. Um, obviously, you know, if you have young growing animals or that kind of thing or milking cows or whatnot. Um, so yeah, we, we follow the forage um, growth stage and we try to um, keep it in that nice vegetative growth, but not uh, graze it too tightly. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It can't, you can't prescribe it with a set number of days. And as you walk through the process, you're not going to know if it's had enough rest until you look, because that's also influenced by how much grazing pressure, but rain, sunshine, the other environmental factors that, that play a role in how quickly that pasture rejuvenates. You talked about intensive grazing, and that has a lot of different definitions of ma management level of intensity and both what that means or rotational grazing. And, and sometimes those words are used interchangeably. I know there's some differences there depending on who you talk to, but I want to focus on an overall grazing plan. And I know you do things from a research perspective, but from as you manage through that process, how do you record your grazing plan? So like you talked about, it's going to be, it's, I can't just go out at the first of the year and say, we're going to move them Friday the 15th. It's how do, how do I, how do you plan that out? How do you keep records so that I know how to do it better next year? Yeah, that's a, um, something that I think we could probably all do better at is record keeping and keeping track of things. And then not only keeping track, but actually going back and using those records for you know future planning. Um, so we have used a couple of different options before. Um, you know, there's uh, grazing charts that you can download online that are kind of like a big Excel file for you to fill in different pastures and when animals were in those pastures and for how long. Um, and you can even record, some people record things like precipitation, weather, big events like that. So they can kind of see, you know, when the rain came and when the animals were where, um, or you can keep it really simple, which is also what we've been using and just have kind of a chart. Um, and you know, each line is a, a day or a move. And so we're just saying from this day to this day, they were in this paddock. Next line is this paddock. They were here from this day to this day and just kind of move your way down the chart. And that way we can look back and actually know um, what dates were they in these pastures and for how long and, and, and that kind of thing. So I've been surprised when I have re recorded things like that. At times you look back and you say, boy, I thought they really didn't use that pasture very well. And then you go count up the days and, and I can be surprised that yes, they did or no, they didn't and figure out what's different from year to year. So I think that's a, a great point as you go through. I, I want to talk a little about your research. I'll kind of shift gears because you introduced me to a new word, and that word is flurred. I think I, I think I'm saying it right. Is that right? 
Yep, that's correct. <laughs> okay, so tell us what is a flerd? So yeah, a, f a flerd is basically a mixture of a flock and a herd. Um, so it's where you have a, a mixed species group of animals. Um, so we, for example, have a flock of lambs, uh, ewe lambs, and a small herd of yearling cattle. And um, we have the two co-mingled and grazing together. And so we just combined flock and, and herd. We didn't come up with that term. I can't say actually where... I first heard it or, or, you know, where it came from. I won't take credit for that, but, um, but we have been using it and, and yeah, it's a kind of a fun word. <laughs> so I like it. Uh, what, what are the advantages of grazing the yearlings and the ewes together? Yeah, so um, there can be several reasons. Um, of course, when you have different species, they tend to have slightly different grazing preferences. Um, so sometimes the uh, lambs will eat some of the things that the cattle will, won't eat and vice versa. Um, we uh, also feel like um, you can kind of increase your carrying capacity a little bit uh, for that reason. So, you know, you're able to have a little bit of extra um you know, live body weight of animals on a given piece of land. Um, and then there also may be advantages in terms of um, things like parasites. So a lot of the parasite issues that um, the small ruminant world deals with um, are not ones that are cross-contaminated or co-mingled across cattle. So sometimes, um, you know, you won't have the same parasite issues with both species and you can kind of help alleviate some of the, of the parasite problems in that way. Um, so yeah, there's, there's several reasons to mix them together. We'll say there's also several challenges, <laughs> um, with that as well. Um, you know, uh, different sizes of animals, different types of fencing that you have to think about round pen panels or corral gates that are designed for cattle or not designed for sheep and vice versa. Um, all those different kinds of things, watering trough heights are different for the two, um, amount of fencing you need is different for the two. If, you know, we are, um, using currently a mixture of um, polywire netting and also uh, just high tensile or not high tensile, I'm sorry, um, you know, uh, multi-strand polywire. And we used to only just run one strand if we just had, you know, cattle and we were subdividing. And now we have to have a minimum of two or deal with the netting, <laughs> which um, if there's any small ruminant folks out there, they they know what uh, that can be a challenge. But Absolutely. And I, and I think that's the feedback that I've received from some producers that have done that is you, you talk about what are some of the challenges and spot what you hit on it's fencing right and so yes we can get some grazing in those different areas but we have to be able to have it all fenced off otherwise they'll be leaving and grazing somewhere else which i guess is even more efficient if they're grazing grazing elsewhere if they would come back home to, what have you learned in your research so far well, we've worked out a lot of kinks with um, co-mingling the uh, two species together. Um, there's a lot of people who think um, they will or will not actually graze together. And ours are, I like to say, together but separate. Um, the, uh, the calves and the lambs tend to stick together and graze in the same area, but they will also be in their two distinct groups. Like the lambs will stick with, kind of with each other and the calves will stick with each other. But if one group leaves and goes in to get a drink of water or go, you know, moose elsewhere, the other group tends to follow as well. So I guess another advantage that I didn't say uh, potentially uh, from the small ruminant side is some predator uh, prevention. If you don't have 
um, you know, a guardian animal or anything like that. Um, having the larger animals around may help uh, prevent with predators. I don't have any data to support that, but uh, just an observation. Um, our study is kind of looking at this whole like perennial annual system that we've been talking about and trying to see, does this actually pay off? Um, is it economical? Because, you know, we talked about a lot of the advantages with some of these annual forages, but some of the disadvantages are you do have to pay for seed every year. You do have to replant every year. What if there's a stand failure one of the years, or you don't get a very good stand established, you know, you're at loss of that of that area then. So there's a lot of expenses and a little bit of risk that goes along with that. And so what we have is actually two flirds. Um, and one of them is grazing perennial only pastures. And the other one is grazing a, this perennial annual kind of combination system that we've been talking about. And we're looking at um, gains, uh, animal growth, body condition score, um, FAMACHA scores for the sheep. Uh, so, you know, a little bit on the parasite pressure there. Um, and also kind of the economics behind these different systems. Um, so this is actually our first year of that project. Um, we have, you know, a, a couple years, obviously, of, of data to collect. Uh, so far, all of the animals are doing well. Um, the The combination system is definitely outperforming the perennials in terms of total forage production. Um, you know, like I mentioned, we have all of those summer annuals right now that are just producing a lot, even though we've been in kind of a drought situation for a good part of the summer. So in terms of forage yield and forage growth, um, that system is currently kind of at the advantage. Uh, both groups have been gaining pretty well, though. Um, you know, we've been keeping up with the perennials. Um, we have a good, you know, mixed stand of perennials, so kind of a, a nice mixture there. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see kind of how the results pan out in terms of kind of this whole system economics. Um, but it's been interesting to kind of work with it so far. That's, what, that's where I was curious about. And when you think about the perennials, so the perennials, I'm assuming that there are times of year you may have to supplement them with hay or other materials. Is that accurate? Yeah. So um, we got the, so we didn't actually get um, up and running this year uh, early enough to use our winter annuals in the spring. So we could have easily started grazing our um, combination system a lot earlier in the spring than when we actually started, but we kind of started the project around um, that April, May timeframe by the time the perennials were up and going. So we actually just took a, um, a, a baleage, a crop of baleage off of the winter annuals and didn't end up grazing them. So that right there, okay, supplemental forage for, for later, you know, if you didn't graze it right away. Um, uh, the perennials, we have been grazing them throughout this summer, but they're definitely kind of petering out. Like they've, we're, you know, one or two or three or however many paddocks away from, okay, are we going to have enough regrowth to continue grazing? And of course, yes, we do have hay um, that we can use if we need to, um, to supplement them versus the annuals. We are still, we can't even keep up hardly um, with our annual fields. So um, this fall, I would expect uh, for sure the winter annual fields to to provide us, you know, with forage further into the late fall or winter season, then our perennials, we're going to have to stop, you know, at some point and, and start feeding hay. So um, that that season extension is really, I think, what's going to boost that annual system um, over the perennial one. Well, and that's one of the things that 
I'd be very curious to see how the economics work out because hay, hay has a cost and whether we make it ourselves or we buy it, it has a cost and it kind of just works into our typical production mindset of, yes, we're going to have to have some hay. Whereas the annuals may or may not be typically where we expect to spend money. And as you said, we're going to have to have seed cost, planting cost, and pro probably some fertilizer cost to, or nitrogen cost somewhere along the way. And I, I'm just really curious about that balance when you break it out to a per day level, which is ahead one way or the other. Because you said performance-wise, they're uh, animal performance-wise, they're similar so far, but you've had a lot more forage productivity when you use the annuals. Do you have a feel on the cost yet? Um, I wish I had a little bit more data to uh, to back this up, but um, I, I have a feeling that, especially in a year like this, like I said, where it's dry and we're probably not going to be able to graze the perennials for too much longer, that the um, annual system is going to come out a little bit ahead. Um, don't quote me on that because I, like I said, I don't have any numbers to back up um, that at the moment, but I do think um, in this type of situation that it will pay off in terms of extra grazing days, you know, and we also are hoping to factor in, um, you know, labor into that. So yes, the, um, we'll have a few extra days of, you know, maybe needing to move the animals more, setting up fence, that kind of thing. But we also have to factor in the label, the labor, excuse me, of, you know, whether we produce hay, stack hay, feed hay, deliver hay to the animals, all of those things um, take a lot of time as well. So um, we're going to try to factor, uh, we're going to work with an economist and try to factor some of that stuff in as well. So we kind of have a whole representative picture of the of the big picture but that sounds excellent really look forward to seeing that research and i have enjoyed visiting with you because we talked a lot about the extending the grazing grazing season through layering through diversity through diversity of species diversity of plants how we would manage that rest period and some of the examples that you gave relative to both summer and winter and depending on where you are in the country one of those is probably more important than the other as far as when you extend your grazing season. So I've been... Animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. The monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production. DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin dash survey. It's time for our famous three. I've enjoyed our visit. We have three questions that we typically ask at the end of the podcast. So you're going to have, these are not related to grazing. They're related to you. So we can learn a little bit more about you. The first is what's your favorite favorite beef related book or resource? Do you have a favorite book or resource that's related to beef cattle that you really enjoy? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I hate to sound like the research scientist that I that I am. The one I look at the most is probably the NRC. For there you go. Uh, yes, you There's nothing wrong with that, with the NRC. It's, yeah. Not very exciting, but um, yeah. Okay. Well, you get a chance to be exciting on the next question because it's what's your favorite, what just in general, outside of ag, what's your favorite book or resource go-to thing that you read? 
Oh boy. Um, for fun or for um, like kind of work-related stuff? Yeah, could be, could be either for fun or work-related, but non-ag. So outside of the ag world. Non-ag. Okay. Um, how about a podcast? Does that sure, count? Because I haven't it. been doing as much reading lately. I have um, been enjoying the guilty pleasure of some true po- true crime podcasts. And I find those very entertaining um, to listen to as I'm driving to and from the research centers and and whatnot. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's kind of what you do in your day job is you're figuring out the mysteries, not the crime part, but it's the mystery part of that, which I think is appealing. So last one, in your opinion, for professionals involved in the beef industry, what really sets them apart? So to be a successful beef professional from maybe one that's not quite as successful? Um, I would say to be successful, you really have to dial in on the business side of things. So it's not the glamorous part. It's not the fun part. It's not, you know, we talk about being out in the field and looking at all these different forages and moving the animals. And that's probably what I would guess a lot of us enjoy more is working with the animals and being with them. Um, But really the business side of things, having a business plan, knowing things like what your average daily gain, what your weight is, especially if it's a grazing system, but regardless, no matter your system, um, knowing the numbers behind that and knowing what parts of your business are actually paying off and are economical and what parts are maybe a little extra bit of dead weight that you're carrying that you know is costing you more than you think it is. So. Um, knowing your numbers is what I would say kind of, you know, sets, sets the successful ones apart from, from the others. Very good. We have enjoyed visiting with you today, Dr. Amanda Greves, working with the University of Maryland and has done a, a great job describing some of the forage and grazing. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and thanks for having me.